Hello, and welcome to the Eclectic Vanguard. With me, Michael Brown. This is, of course, Radiolab 97.1 FM. You are not going to want to miss our show today, ladies and gentlemen. At 35 minutes past the hour, we're going to be talking to radical feminist Megan Murphy, editor of FeministCurrent.com, about the intersection between transgender activism and women's rights. Before that, in just a couple of minutes, we're going to be talking to one Luke Anthony Walsh, whom you might know from Walsh Weekly on this very station every Sunday from 12 to 3. You may not know that he has actually produced a very interesting radio documentary on the way that the coronavirus has made things profoundly difficult for those who are involved in the performing arts. Here's a clip. In the space of just four weeks, the whole world was brought to a standstill, and this country was brought to a halt. For the creative arts, it was stricken to its knees. This is the timeline of how the creative arts have coped. This is the silence of the arts. There it is, the silencing of the arts. The coronavirus pandemic really has been such overriding news this year that I could not imagine a more important topic to have somebody come in to discuss. Is a vaccine forthcoming? We can hope so, but perhaps it's not best to be overly optimistic at this point. One thing is certain, though, before we get any positive news, we can expect that this virus would have been impacting our lives day in, day out, for a year. But there are people who have been affected worse than others, for a variety of reasons, and it's important not to lose sight of those disparities. That's why we've got Luke Walsh here on the show, with a Master's in International Journalism and four years of experience with the station, producing his own radio show, he has a lot of really interesting things to say, so I hope you enjoy the discussion. And I'm joined by Luke Walsh, the producer and presenter of the hit radio documentary, Silence of the Arts. This was about the way that the coronavirus has been impacting many of the performing arts. And thanks for joining us uh, today, Luke Walsh. Michael, it's an absolute pleasure to join you. Thank you. So could you just ex explain to us in general terms, uh, obviously I'm sure many of us can imagine, but how has the performing arts been implicated by the coronavirus oh, and the subsequent lockdowns? Horrifically. Certainly when... Well, my, so, was, so I sort of started off with a rule of thumb, looking at, okay, when did the lockdown start and when uh, did it stop and, and sort of looking at that as, as a control variable. And you can immediately see from about... E even before... Uh, Boris's announcement on the 23rd of March that the performing arts was about to be stabbed in the back because mm. you know in, in in an instant we were seeing events being cancelled left right and center and in the space of a week did the, the whole industry had been brought to its knees with no sort of idea of whether we can be back up on its knees I mean if, if you if you think it took uh, about th what, three or four months for the culture secretary Oliver Dowden to come mm. out and say yes i'm going to provide funding for the arts and you know i'd hate to be a, a um a member of, of that a creative industry where you just don't know when your next paycheck is going to be coming in yeah because that's a, a naturally um un unsecure insecure um, working environment anyway exactly because it's a, exactly. A, literally a gig economy exactly and you know when you're going from paycheck to paycheck and you know let, let, let's not beat around the bush here you know 2020 for a lot of people they would have their their their, their whole calendar booked out you know in months in advance and and to that to be wiped out in an instant um it's, it's just simply extraordinary so for me to 
um, document it and talk to those um, who've been affected uh, hmm. felt like a real duty because, you know, as much as other sectors were be- being looked at, you know, such as uh, the hospitality sector, uh, retail hmm. uh, being another, but the performing arts and the creative arts sector um, is so fundamental, um, not only for culture, not only for um, people's mental health to an extent. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's remarkable. Would you say that there have been some, because obviously we're talking about performing arts in a, it's a sort of a general term, have there been some performers who, and in particular uh, mediums of performance, that have been more adversely affected than others? And have there, have there been any that have come out relatively unscathed? Oh, I, I, absolutely. I mean, uh, comedians, for example, um, yeah. did not fall under the criteria uh, for any sort of funding before July. Um, and so it took a real gathering of comedy as 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 an art to say you know what we are as much of a a, uh, a much of a part of of the creative sector than uh, an artist um a singer an actor a dancer um you know they they are still you know popular you don't have to look at you don't even have to look far at with with comedy you know you've you know people like Michael McIntyre people like you know oh yeah um Jack Whitehall you know they're they're making their millions, but they had to start somewhere, and so yes. you know, and, and even at the best of times, we're, we're going through a time where you know comedy clubs are starting to decline because everything is being moved, uh, you know, to online, to Netflix, to um, get you know people less fewer people are attending comedy and you know are prioritizing other arts. So it took a real blow, but it was such a relief over during the summer when I was interviewing. Uh, the comedians that I know, um, that there is some sort of lifeline uh, available for them. I mean, on the other hand, um, I don't think there is one sort of art specifically that came out unscathed. I mean, mm. what one thing that I considered throughout my the production process was that you know there are still ways and means um, with comedy. There were still online comedy shows with singers um they could still go into a recording studio and record and edit and produce um, yeah just not in as as free for uh, a free free frame of mind as as they used to writers can still uh produce work from home just not in the same mindset as they usually would be um yeah but i think everyone is with, of- with um with comedy surely one of the issues would be that there is a a certain interactivity to to comedy that is you know obviously it would be very i can imagine it would be very difficult for a comedian because one of the things i have heard from comedians when i've spoken to them is they say when you're doing a stand-up the reception you get from the audience is really important to doing a good performance because you can kind of get an idea and on the fly work yeah. out what's working what's not and that would be missing if you have to do kind of a live show you would think this is where uh, from, this is where know, the zoom yeah. shows have really um been a, a huge joy to be a part of and, and, and to see happen because you know zoom is is if if, if you consider that the breaking the fourth wall um for a comedian and when, when you're seeing you know people sat in the front row you know that that that's the yeah. sort of that, that level but when you get to see that extra the layer being risen because you know they're at home they're in their living rooms they're in a, a comfortable setting you know there is that sort of level of intimacy um yeah. that a comedian can draw upon and you know i think as the comedians that i spoke to you know, really found that beneficial 
um to the extent you know some have said well maybe online comedy gigs where when the world returns to normal and and uh, tour dates can be re- reduced online gigs will, will fit in amongst that schedule because they can reach a wider audience um whereas otherwise they may not have you know be able to go to this town or city or go to that venue um in in the amount of dates that they're given per year yeah so do you think it's possible there could almost be some positive lessons learned from this experience and there could actually be some interesting and perhaps uh you know uh, beneficial ideas that are taken forward from this uh yeah le- less than ideal time yeah for sure for sure yeah um but i think there's also possibly a downside to it which is you, you mentioned how uh for the the big comedians they get obviously attention on um on streaming platforms yeah. and things like that. And it seems like one of the issues is that this has perhaps put a, a much larger barrier for entry in terms of succeeding in the performing arts because it's concentrated a lot of power in the hands of these big uh, multi-billionaire streaming corporations. So uh, you make an interesting point. I've always discussed with um, the art sector, um, certainly with theatres, um, in that, you know, the, the the whole idea about accessibility, um, in in a, in a world where we can watch a performance in an instant, should we choose to do so, mm. um, is 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 so important. I mean, for for, for comedy, um, we have Next Up Comedy, which is a streaming service for comedians to upload their performances and 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 find it there. We're seeing, um, because we saw Hamilton uh, on Disney Plus over the summer, mm. um, and you know, obviously we we've seen gigs being put up on youtube and and, and yes yeah, the online performance and, and so on but the, the reverse to that is that then if that then becomes the the platform where we we push forward those who are established onto the next stage we then need to make space in these comedy clubs that do survive and that we can support them for those who are coming through and that's how we establish the the the, the um establish the chain so that you know we have an even balance of those who are who have made it who are want you know to warm up for Edinburgh shows or or go on tour and they, they can perform at, at the bigger venues but the the smaller comedy venues where they are dedicated to the next level or the, the up-and-coming comedians of the future those are the spaces for them to be able to come through and develop their act and develop their material so I think that's that's the, that's the important thing in the next couple of years plus on, on top of all that I think with the whole Black Lives Matter movement um mm. there is a, a wider wider debate in the sense that the whole sector needs to be more diverse and more open-minded i mean um i've known companies who've had to relook at their structure um to make it more diverse and more representative of the audience that they're performing to um mm. and so that it's it, you know it, it's, it's a more fair and, and uh, equal society um so i think positive changes are being made uh which i think otherwise would not have we're not have raised the question of of doing so. So, yeah, there is a lot of uh, takeaways. Sort of when we do come back to normal and people can perform again, that the changes being made now will make such a drastic difference when in the next two or three years, guaranteed. Yeah, but uh, obviously, for a lot of people who this has been their dream, people mm. who have really wanted to mm. perform, uh, it done done so. This has basically put a massive roadblock in. Uh, like you say potentially two to three years of, of their life mm. where they're really not going to be able to pursue this as much as, as they would like mm. so I, I i guess one question would be uh, w- when you think about it from that perspective was the lockdown almost a, a cure worse than the, than the disease uh, at least in some sense uh it's interesting because i've known 
saying when I was uh, interviewing a few uh, well-established comedians, they were saying that they they know friends of theirs who ha- who had to get jobs at Tesco, who yeah have said well yeah they 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 were just about to you know really get get their foot down and obviously the build up to to the Edinburgh Festival um, in August you know they were really gonna you know make big waves and all of a sudden you know that's 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 then taken away from them and then obviously to recover from that uh especially yeah. when you're starting is is nigh on impossible because you you are deterred and you are you having to start all over again um in, in the same regard that you know if it's, it's it's like building a car tower if you get you know build up to a certain level and then all of a sudden you remove one card if you're, you're back to square one again mm. and um yeah that that certainly is has been a, a huge impact not just for comedy but for across the sector i mean certainly me as a radio broadcaster um and somebody who's hosted my own student radio show for the past four years i thought well you know there there was a time for when will i get the chance to speak to people again when will i able to be back on air now fortunately um i made sure i i created my own uh streaming platform and and made sure i put uh, my archive up on soundcloud um so that i could keep some sort of content flowing week in week out you know whilst the uncertainty raveled on um, mm. And I and I invested in equipment so that I could record from homes. And you know, I did. I, I think everyone has, has has done what they can. It all boils down to when Rishi Sunak said about upskilling and about you know people in the creative arts having to look at other avenues. I think that caused a huge divide in people, in that they have been made to they've, they've been essentially handed a, a a huge turning point in their career. Because they either stick mm. with what they know, what they love to do, or they they concede defeat in a, in a way and say, right, I'm just going to go down a different way and may never return to um, how it used to be. Reminder: You're listening to the Eclectic Vanguard with me, Michael Brown, on Radio Lab 97.1 FM. Now back to the show. It's curious because obviously that there has been some controversy about the um, the tier system and the fact that you know you've got a tier three and, and all these different places, and there was a concern that that could lead to divisions in the country but it seems like the far more uh, immediately obvious division is is really when it comes to yeah what kind of work you're doing and to certainly lots of other people have not had to be been uh, told that the thing that they've not just a dream but things that many of these people have actually worked towards and i think yeah one of the people you um you were interviewing in, in your in your documentary was it, it was coming up on that they'd only recently got into performing live shows yeah and then it was uh you know cut short so these are people who have put in a lot of the effort done a lot of the hard work and now those people are being told to you know by rishi sunak to move into other areas and that's in a way that that's much more profoundly unfair than people in the east midlands having to face a few more lockdowns than people somewhere else mm. put, put put it another way if i say you were studying for a degree uh and you had your heart set on 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 completing the degree mm. and, and 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 going from there and just in like you, you start the course and then you immediately told you have to start studying something else is is it's the same effect yeah there's do, do you think it is unduly callous for somebody at this point to say ten thousand hundred thousand people die in the uk but relative to the impact that's had on the 
65 million people who live in the UK, uh, when you're looking at people in, in universities who have had their university experiences com completely ruined, you look at people going into Christmas who are going to be having much worse Christmases. Of course, you look at what we, we're speaking about right now, the people who work in particular sectors of jobs, and it's been completely stymied. Um, at, at what point does it become unduly callous to say, actually, there is a, a degree to which we just have to accept that death is a fact of life, pandemics and diseases are a fact of life, and we just need to actually move on you, you know do you think do you think how many people uh is, is an acceptable number of uh you know to to say well that's just how it is uh, and, and do you think the current lockdown is overzealous this is it this is the million dollar question because i think mm. a lot of people certainly those who are anti-vaccine anti um uh lockdown anti-mask anti-mask will refer to the statistics and say, well, you know, yes, X amount of people are, are, are testing positive each day and the death rate is considerably lower. Um, and they'll use that as, as their, their form of argument. Now, it's, 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 it's a really tough one because, you, yes, the, the evidence is there. But on the, at the same time, we have to eliminate this epidemic um, and we have to protect one another in a way that mm. we haven't done so, uh, certainly for many generations. This almost seems to have laid bare one of the flaws in individualist thinking, because the, the temptation is to just say, well, we should let whoever wants to go to a comedy, comedy club, go to a comedy club, whoever wants to go to a gig, go to a gig. But of course, the issue there is that these pandemics can only be attacked from a, a central collectivist mindset mm. in a way which i think for, for many people in in western liberal democracies capitalist democracies that idea of such a form of collectivism is unpalatable but if if the disease has forced our hands in that regard is it not also true that it should kind of guide us as far as economics is concerned as well that for as long as we're going to have to pull together uh to deal with the virus we're also going to have to pull together much more economically and perhaps it's unfair that there are some people who may, might have upper middle class jobs who really their lives have not been affected too much at all they've just been able to work from home and still earn a decent salary while other people as you said have had their economic prospects completely turned upside down and actually we really need to become more collectivist in our economic mindset with that being the case interesting point i think certainly if you if you look at the first two weeks of march this year um as the waves of of of, of coronavirus was was suddenly coming from china and all of, all of a sudden it was coming through um eastern europe and then through to central europe and you know it hit italy pretty hard um there were a lot of people saying earlier on that we should have gone into lockdown a lot sooner and we could have prevented it a lot sooner i mean boris johnson mm. uh, uh ignored numerous warnings about coronavirus uh when it came, i think it came to ppe uh, and the availability of it um i think it's 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 a really tough debate because i think we can look back in hindsight and say well we should have done this we should have done that um but i think we the only thing we have to be fortunate about is that we live in a 21st century world if this has been yeah if this was 1920 for example and technology mm. that we that we have didn't exist it would have affected way more people than it had now. Yeah. Um, it, we, we live in a world that we're so thankful that we have an NHS, that we have um, up-to-date information. We have, you know, as much as, you know, the 
the figures themselves are a bit foggy. At least we're getting briefings daily on what the numbers are and what they mean and what that means for us going forward. And I think the tier system now, uh, as controversial as you may, may think, at least we have one. Otherwise, you know, yeah. it, it could be a, a, a virus like um, cholera, uh, you know, way back when, where it, it just spreads and spreads and spreads. Perhaps just one one issue though might be that yes we we do have these uh these means to curb the the virus because of our twenty first century advances but that perhaps these these means are being applied with unequal effect and and in some sense you know you look at viruses in the past the Spanish flu even the Black Death these almost served as as great equalizers in our society because anybody could could be affected by them and obviously we, we know plenty of uh, stories from anyone who knows about british history knows about noblemen and, and even kings and queens being affected by disease it was a you know something that everybody had to experience and it was something that brought people together whereas now it's almost as if because we have the ability to curb it but that the resources necessary to curb the virus are uh, distributed to a significant extent based on wealth mm. people who can't afford to stay off from work have to go yeah. into work while the richest people can kind yeah. of stay home perhaps, you know perhaps there's almost a growing inequality that mm. might emerge from this because don't forget aside from the black lives matter movement it was it was found out early on that it would be um black and ethnic minorities who would be mm. affected uh greater than, than any other ethnicity yeah um so I think we we will look back in 21 22 uh with great socioeconomic analysis um yeah and and look at how and, and obviously the the pros and cons will be debated certainly uh, from an economic perspective we we've, we've gone into a not just a recession but a depression um mm. and and that's you know what we need to look at but I think it's 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 one it's it's not a debate for today. I think I think certainly no, going yeah. forward, um, when when we're out of lockdown, once the vaccine is readily available, and you know we lockdown as though we don't have to wear a mask going anywhere, um, and you know the rule of six is completely out the window. I think that's when we can start to have those conversations. Yes, and, and hopefully people do do remember the impact that that was had on on some some few. Uh, people particularly you know like i said people who, who work in uh, careers and uh, areas of, of work where it's been much more adversely affected by the coronavirus hopefully people do remember that there was people were affected to unequal degrees and that there will be some kind of a uh, compensation and you would hope for example i mean that there would be some kind of attempt to get people back into the arts after this is over that once once it's over there might be a a government uh effort to yeah br bring people some of the people who've been pushed away from that fold back into it oh oh, oh, um... oh without fail like 2021 yeah. once the once once the, the doors are open people will flood back in i guarantee you know, glastonbury will be sold out again we'll guarantee edinburgh festival will be sold out again i guarantee it the surge um for the demand of of, of arts will come back mm. in, almost immediately because Without the arts, there would be no culture, and without no culture, I guess there would be no society. Oh yeah, so I guess I guess that's kind of a positive thing. Although for the the people who right now, uh, like say, are working in the the performing arts, as you say, this this really has been, uh, as the document said, the the silencing of the arts. Um, for those people, they need to just make sure that they hold tight, uh, keep do, doing what what is available. Of course, there are online um, substitutes, but to i guess maybe have some some hope looking forward to the fact that 
like I say, once it does uh, does blow over, there, yeah, there will be lots of people who will want to go out and uh, get interested in, in the arts again. So perhaps once things uh, calm down, there there will be a, a bit more of a and distribution of, of money to mm. you know these these people mm. again which is is good um do you, do you think do you have any thoughts about how, what the government could be doing right now to alleviate the situation obviously you've spoken to a few people you've uh, made a documentary on this is there anything you picked up as a good uh next move it's a real tough one because what what you have to bear in mind is that okay from, from a local's perspective um away from coronavirus venues are closing down anyway they you know the, the 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 decline in in venues um is 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 rising sharply i mean you you only have to look at um that what one example i always draw upon is the hq sports bar in dunstable uh, hmm. now two years ago when england uh did so well in, in the world cup that place yeah. went viral not 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 just you know national or local viral globally of of the scenes of the, of of the fans going yeah. absolutely mental and you think that place would be supported by that that publicity and the, within 12 months that place had closed down yeah um, and you know you look at other venues uh, over the years certainly uh, you know nationally where you know people have come through uh, playing these venues you know so certainly even in Luton you look at the history as there's some buildings uh, where the Beatles played, I think it was in '63. They they came and played Luton yeah. on, on the rise, uh, and I think now you know it's repurposed for something else. You look at places like that where, you know, it, it's so fundamental that you know these places are supported. You know, now now we sort of, we can talk about in, in these times where, you know, the funding isn't going to every venue. MK11 is uh, closing down because they weren't awarded funding, and yet you see a venue like the Horn in St Albans. Uh, provided emergency funding um so you you're sort of having to value one art over another one venue over to another and you know we we can debate for another day as to how equal and it uh that is um but but that's that's just the the harsh reality um Mm. but i think you know that you can only do what what's in front of you and you know, with with the prospect of lockdown coming to an end, hopefully in, in 2021, um, I think that's when the surge should hopefully revitalise the, the whole sector as a whole. Uh, and then in turn, that then maybe could bring other places back back on it, onto its feet. So who knows? I, I, it's a really tough call. No, um, yeah. But I think, you know, the, the fact that there are at least rounds of funding available, uh, Arts Council LinkedIn have been supportive. You know, at least there is some support. You know, in in any other time, there wouldn't be any. Uh, do Do you know of any? Um, obviously, we were just speaking about what what options there were for the government. But I, I'm curious if uh, you would think there would be quite a few uh, specifically artist oriented uh, organisations and maybe even some uh, individual personalities who are in the performing arts who have been trying to help some of the people who've been disadvantaged. Do you know if there is any sort of um the solidarity efforts within the performing arts to make sure that people are coming together and, and that they're helping each other. This is sort of it goes back to the sort of the time bef- uh, before the, the 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 funding was announced. Is that you know mm. organisations and venues were 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 using crowdfunding uh, websites to be able to support mm. themselves. 
I mean, I know of an organisation, um, Next Generation Youth Theatre, who raised five thousand pounds, uh, two and a half grand to support themselves, and then two and a half grand for local artists to support themselves. Uh, even the I, I go back to the example of the Horn in St Albans. They did a crowdfunder to be able to finance themselves. Um, so it's that sort of collective effort and collective ownership, um, which has been so fundamental at, at times like this, where we don't just participate and um, facilitate the arts; we own it and we we collectively share mm. that responsibility. So, so it, it's it's been touch and seeing that, but also again, as I said earlier on, is that you know the comedians standing up for themselves uh, and other arts forms. I know even professional wrestling to an extent has, has said, look we're as much of an art form as anybody else because you know without that sort of voice saying hang on a minute you need to pay attention to us it would have been completely ignored yeah that's uh and i think obviously it's it's, it's there's something very much bittersweet about it that in some sense there is there, there's the nice aspect of these people are coming together there's the nice aspect of it like you say once it's all over um it, it should all fall into place in quite a nice way where there will be this renewed enthusiasm uh, and yet at the same time the the bitter aspect is, is the fact that it almost feels you, you've got to imagine that those artists right now especially when you're you're, you're thinking about something that is so self-directed as uh, as the performing art something where it's so much about building yourself up uh you know doing your own promotion i mean this is something where uh, usually for the performing arts it's, it's not handed to you mm. and these people i imagine are very used to to working and I guess grinding day in and day out and for them to now be in, in a situation where it must feel like a lot of uh, what needs to be done is very much out of their control yes. and in the hands of the scientists working on these vaccines yes. the government in charge of distributing it which must be you know un- un- horrible for them is and you would hope again that this would in society cause some kind of shift in terms of a like you said I think what you said about culture does not belong to the the performing artists it's not something that they are doing uh for for their own monetary gain in some sense as much as it's something which is being done because culture is is a shared thing and the performing artists are, are a medium for it that happens and, and you would hope that that would be something which would be um b- born in mind yeah. by our, our culture as a collective uh is, is do you have anything else to uh kind of leave us with perhaps something positive doesn't have to be i think i mean i i, I want to go check out the documentary and listen for yourself and hear these stories oh, of course because, yes of course these, these stories need to be told and you know, where, where where is that available uh, that will be available on my soundcloud page i think you can put a link in the description somewhere uh, and i'll share it out on your social media because i think at the end of the day these stories need to be told uh we will look back in 20 50 years time on a, on, a, on times like this where you know it was we've been challenged we've been pushed we've been torn apart um but we've come out of this we can we're, we're starting to come out of this stronger than ever and I think you know, like as as I've sort of sort of described, is that decisions being made now will change the industry so much for the better, and mm. it's just it's just amazing to sort of to know people as part of it and and sort of be a witness to it all. Mm. So that's very good. Yeah, uh, thank you. That's uh, Luke Walsh. Of uh, you can listen to his his radio show on Walsh Weekly. That's uh, Sunday from twelve to three. Is that right? Every Sunday between twelve or three on Rage Lab ninety seven point one FM. Yes, exactly. And uh, of course, yes, you, you'll be able to find his documentary, The Sciencing of the Arts, by uh, Luke Walsh if you check out his social media. Uh, and I will try to put up on mine. So thank you, Luke. No problem. Reminder, you're listening to The Eclectic Vanguard with me, Michael Brown, on Radiolab 97.1 FM. Now back to the show.
That was Luke Walsh talking about his documentary, and I think it is a very interesting documentary. And if you want to be able to make a start on trying to find it, then your best bet would be to follow Luke on Twitter at OneWalshMeister, uh, spelled how it sounds, at Twitter, and I, I imagine you will be able to find a link to his, his work there. But for a slight change of pace, we're going to be now turning to Megan Murphy. Uh, Megan Murphy is a feminist activist based in Canada who is the editor of a feminist website called feministcurrent.com. And one of the points that Megan Murphy, uh, Feminist Current, and a lot of contemporary feminist activists are very interested in is how gender is, is being defined in a contemporary context, particularly within academia, but also within a lot of the laws as, as they're currently being written. And there was an example in, in Canada, and this was the example that got me interested in this discussion, and particularly speaking to Megan Murphy, uh, about a particular individual who considers themselves to be a woman, but what they were doing was seeking out beauticians who only worked with women, and asking these beauticians to wax them in some intimate areas. This is, this is what this individual was doing. They were seeking out these beauticians, asking them to, to wax them in these, these intimate areas. And the beauticians would then respond saying, you know, no, because we only offer our services to women, you know, and, and we're not interested in, in waxing what you've got going on in, in your intimate areas. And the response was that this individual who considers themselves to be a woman would then sue these uh, these salons for this behavior, saying that it was it was transphobic and it was bigoted, and this caused a huge controversy because, of course, it was it was these these women, uh, a lot of them women of color, working in these um, salons who were basically just wanted the the right to be able to refuse to touch uh, male genitalia. But unfortunately, because of, of the laws that they're written, there is no reason uh, within a lot of countries now to say that having a male genitalia should not make you completely authentically a woman. And this is a debate, and it's a debate that is ongoing currently. I mean, you look at what's happening with, with J.K. Rowling, you look at the current instance, uh, the, the ruling regarding the Tavistock case, and, and th yeah, this is an ongoing unfolding issue. And there are good arguments on both sides, there are interesting points on both sides, and I think a lot of people have maybe only heard one side, not heard the other. So I, I was particularly interested to seek out somebody who was coming very much from the, the feminist angle, the feminist progressive angle, but was very much critical of some of, some of what's going on from certain trans activists and certain theories that trans activism has brought about and how that is negatively impacting women. And that was uh, Megan Murphy. So this is the conversation I had with Megan Murphy, editor of Feminist Current, um, prominent activist in Canada uh, with a master's in gender, sexuality, and women's studies from Simon Fraser University. And I hope you I hope you enjoy it and find it as interesting as I did. The issue, the main issue with trans rights activism is that they aren't really fighting for rights. You know, I obviously support everyone's right to not be harassed or discriminated against, to live a life with dig dignity, to be able to live in a way that feels authentic to them. Um, but my experience has been that trans activists are insistent on tearing down women's spaces in particular. So in destroying what women have built up over decades, mainly 
through the feminist movement. So spaces like transition houses, you know, the, you know, destruction of women's sports, um, ensuring access to women's change rooms and washrooms, um, uh, the transferring of men to women's prisons. So they're, they're, they're trying to fight for access specifically for men to have access to women's spaces, women's spaces wherein women and girls are often quite vulnerable. Um, yeah. So the, what they're fighting for in many ways endangers women. And um, I mean... What would just have interest? Sorry, I don't want to interrupt. But uh, what would be a, a very good contemporary example of that? That um, trans rights activists really damaging the integrity of women's only spaces? Um, well, I, think the, I think the sports example is a good example. Um, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You know, essentially, if we allow males um, to compete with and against girls or women in sport, um, there is no more women's sport. I mean, it's just it's not mm. fair. Like women and girls aren't able to compete on fair ground against men, again, because of those physical differences that you can't get rid of through transition, um, you know, testosterone and surgery doesn't undo the process of going through puberty which is the thing that you know the main thing that um ensures boys and girls develop differently so men will still have you know different bone density different muscle mass um again they're the way that they walk and move will be different no matter what no matter what hormones they're on or what surgeries they have and so they're going to have an advantage over women. Um, you know, a mediocre male athlete who can't really compete among other males or at least can't win yeah. is going to be able to easily compete against and win against women and girls. And it just negates the whole competition. I mean, women and girls who've trained and fought their whole lives to compete are suddenly um, not, not in a position to compete fairly. And, you know, girls in high school will be losing out on scholarships and things like that. It's something that's already happening. Um, the issue of men in women's prisons, of course, is a big one, too. You know, men are already being transferred to women's prisons and assaulting women in those prisons. And very little is being done. Nothing's being done in Canada, that's for sure. They've fully ignored this issue and continued to allow this to go on. The feminist understanding of gender is, or, or I guess you'd say the uh, gender critical feminist understanding of gender however we want to talk about it is uh that gender is about gender roles and obviously a a queer theory argument is that there's gender identity and there's gender expression and i guess what i'm wondering is do you think that that understanding of gender is helpful or extremely harmful and to what extent for a feminist understanding of gender it seems to me that the queer theory understanding of gender is rooted in postmodernism. So that is to say, you know, it doesn't, there is no material reality. There is no objective truth. There's only subjective truth, which means it's up to the individual to determine what's real and what's not. So if you feel like a man, whatever that means, that's a completely undefinable thing. There's no such thing as feeling like a man or feeling like a woman. You just are. It's just a, a 
biological reality. You have a male body, female body. I don't know what that means to feel like a woman. I'm sure that I feel very different than, you know, another woman down the street <laughs> for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Um, that it just means that, yeah, suddenly material reality is determined by by an individual feeling. One of the main questions I often ask around this topic is when people tell me trans women are women or, you know, kids are whatever they say they are or people are whatever they say they are. If I say I'm a man, then you have to accept the fact that I'm a man and not question me. Is like, what is a man and what is a woman? And if we can't define what a woman is in any kind of, you know, cohesive way, what even is a woman's right? You know, what are we fighting for? Mm. What's feminism? Why, you know, what, what is this movement about if not fighting for female rights? Um, and, you know, fighting against male violence against women in particular globally the queer theorists have conflated sex and gender. So they're saying, you know, gender is not binary, you know, stop putting people in this binary. And we're saying we know gender is not binary. We invented that. We've been talking about this for, I'm saying we, like the feminist movement, obviously I wasn't around during the second wave, but uh, you know, this is what feminists have been fighting for for decades to say gender is not binary. We're not limited to these stereotypes. Um, but what they actually mean is that sex isn't binary, which of course it is, but they don't say that they say gender is not binary. And then they sort of manipulatively, I, I don't know if they're manipulating, I sort of suspect they're, they're being unclear on purpose, but maybe they're just not very intelligent. It's really hard to determine. Um, <laughs> like maybe yeah. they don't know what they're talking about actually. And they don't know what the difference between sex and gender is. A lot of people seem to complete those terms. Um, but yeah, they sort of they sort of alternate back and forth between sex and gender when they're writing or talking about this. They they conflate it into an argument that says that male and female are not binary and there's all these in-between categories and then they'll start referencing other cultures. Like they'll be like indigenous cultures and in India there's third categories and nobody mm. nobody thinks that, you know, there's only male and female. Every culture that has ever existed around the entire world for all of history has known the difference between males and females and know that males and females exist. They know how babies are made. Um, hmm. And, you know, there, yeah, there are some cultures where there's what, what might be referred to if you're, if you're speaking from a Western, it gets weird to apply, you know, Western understandings and Western academic theories to these other cultures that you're not really familiar with at all. But, you yeah. know, what might be called a third gender, but they don't believe that those third genders are literally like, they don't believe that that dissolves the categories of male and female. They don't believe that male and female don't exist. They've just created this other category. Usually it's for effeminate men. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's just sort of, you know, they're sort of, yeah, they're imposing their sort of Western academic jargon on other cultures to bolster their nonsensical arguments. I don't know if that answered your question or not. <laughs> no, no, that, that perfectly did. Um, you mentioned uh, the idea of sex being a binary. What, what would you say to people who bring up intersex people? What would be your response to that as an objection? Yeah, I mean, most people with intersex conditions still are clearly either male or female. You know, there's a, mm. there's a 
a pretty wide variety of intersex conditions. So people talk about intersex as though it's one thing and it's definitely not. Um, you know, you can be, it's, you can qualify as intersex if you have, you know, a large clitoris or a very, very small penis. Um, but also, of course, if you have, um, if, you know, a, a, an abnormal mix of chromosomes, let's say, um, or uh, anyway, I'm not a scientist, so actually I shouldn't yeah. be talking about what all these various conditions are because I don't, I'm not an expert, but I do know that there's a wide variety of intersex conditions. And I do know that most intersex people are still clearly male, male or female, but then have an intersex condition. People talk about intersex as though it's a third sex, but it's not. It's just male or female people or people who have intersex conditions. Um, so I think there's probably a few situations where it really is difficult to determine, which is fine. I mean, you can just be intersex. Like, that's okay, and it should be okay. And, you know, obviously, in the past, there was a, a common practice where a doctor would decide at birth, well, I'm going to turn this intersex baby into a female or a male. And we don't do yeah. that anymore, and we recognize that as wrong. And that's a good thing. Reminder, you're listening to The Eclectic Vanguard with me, Michael Brown, on Radiolab 97.1 FM. Now back to the show. The existence of intersex conditions, again, doesn't dissolve the categories of male or female because most of us don't have intersex conditions. <laughs> most of us yeah. are very clearly and obviously male and female. And any doctor will be able to determine whether or not we're male or female just through a blood test, never mind through physical observation. You know, anthropologists, or sorry, like archaeologists and, yeah, anthropologists, people, like, you know, you could dig up bones, a scientist, not me, could dig up bones (laughs) centuries ago and be able to tell easily if those bones belong to a male or a female. Um, you know, like, it's it's not really as complicated as people like to kind of pretend it is. Uh, do you have any concerns about how the current political culture surrounding trans activism may impact free speech? Yeah, I mean, so what, what trans activists have done, and other leftist activists are doing this as well, um, is to say that anything that challenges their ideology is hate speech and is dangerous and puts trans people at risk. They'll even say that these ideas are violence. Um, And so they've created this entire uh, discourse that turns what is a political or ideological disagreement into literal violence or literal harm or literal hate speech. And you know, either they seem to want to criminalize that speech, which means, for example, that if you refer to a man who identifies as a woman as he, um, that's that's called misgendering, and that's, you know, a hate speech mm-hmm. or a hate crime or violence somehow. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a complete manipulation because nobody's saying anything hateful when they're, when they're, you know, challenging ideology, you know, the, what I'm talking about and what the women that I'm, you know, allied with in this movement are talking about has nothing to do with hate, has nothing to do with fear, absolutely has nothing to do with violence. It's about making arguments, um, particular argu- particularly arguments in defense of women and girls. 
but you know it's 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 completely i think it's completely dangerous to start framing words and ideas and arguments and debate as violence and hate speech and and as a hate crime um for obvious reasons because i don't know how we can have a dialogue or advocate for women's rights in this case um this can be extended to other areas as well if we're not allowed to say these things you know if we're not allowed to talk about the question of what is a woman and if we're not allowed to talk about how gender identity legislation impacts women um that harms 50 percent of the population as far as i'm concerned and and again yeah it's just disingenuous it's you know and people have really accepted this idea a lot of people progressives have accepted the idea of that so-called misgendering or dead naming so you know referring to a trans person's actual name that they were born with not the name that they they've decided to take on as a, a transitioned person is um hateful and it and it stops the conversation you know people are like i'm not engaging with you you're saying something hateful um i'm not listening to you you're saying something harmful or violent um and yeah yeah so this this tactic has really worked in a lot of ways i mean and and of course you know every time i've ever spoken anywhere somebody or some group or a that hundreds of protesters try to deplatform me and bully the the venue, bully the organizers, bully the attendees, and you know, often actually threaten. You know, usually the venues get violent threats and a lot of violent threats, um, and the people who organize the events also mm. get violent threats. So you know, it, and it's scary, you know, and it's intimidating. Um, and we have to have a police presence at all the events we do, and I have to have private security, like and bodyguards. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy, and then it absolutely does have an impact on free speech because some of the venues cave, most of them don't, partly because you know, you know, we've and on our end here in Vancouver, in any case, we have lawyers who help us ensure people keep their contracts and don't back out. <clears throat> but uh, it also instills fear in people. So people are afraid to have the conversation. You know, so many people that I know will tell me privately that they agree with what I'm saying, um, obviously, but that they would never say anything to their friends or family or publicly about this for fear of being attacked or ostracized or fired from their jobs. Uh, someone else I was speaking to mentioned is they were they were talking about how uh, the language of a lot of trans activism inherently makes it difficult to have conversations. So, for example, even if you you wanted to have a conversation about uh, gender, and even if you were speaking to someone who could, uh, it becomes very difficult when, for example, pronouns are very baked into our language and things like that. Uh, because of that, it's almost like a situation where there's kind of a presuppositional element to it, where that you don't really have any uh, nexus points to have the conversation. Because obviously you, you kind of mentioned how when you're talking about gender as a feminist, they're talking about something completely different. So could you say that maybe a more subtle form of uh, affecting the ability to engage in, you know, debate and conversation? Yeah, totally. Um, it's, you know, if we're not, I mean, I, I talk about how this impacts media in journalism and data a lot, right? So what's happened in the media 
is that mm. journalists will or reporters will report on violent crimes, often crimes against women and girls, and the whole article will it'll be a, a woman's name and the reporter will be using female pronouns and you'll sort of get to the end of the article and sort of maybe realize sometimes you just have to do your own research but sometimes you'll sort of realize or you'll just see the the photo the image in the report and be like oh that's a dude um and this whole article is pretending as though some woman has violently attacked somebody or sexually assaulted somebody or murdered somebody and it completely manipulates public perception and it also impacts data i mean now we're collecting data based on gender identity versus sex which will impact things like funding for women's services um and impact our understanding of male violence against women in this world, which is something major that, you know, feminists have been uh, working on to analyze and address for, for so long. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it sort of makes it impossible for us to have a real conversation if we can't talk about who's a man and who's a woman, um, especially if we're talking about predators. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if there's a woman in a change room or a washroom or whatever, but it definitely matters if there's a man in a change room or a washroom. It definitely matters if, like, a man is asking an esthetician for a Brazilian bikini wax, which essentially means that these estheticians are going to have to be handling a man's genitals. I mean, it's, it's just, it feels like mass gaslighting to me. Mm. A lot of people will say that they'll say, you know, there's there's different experiences of womanhood. So like a a, a white woman's going to have a different experience of womanhood to a, a black woman and a straight woman's going to have a different experience of womanhood to a lesbian woman. And I'll say, well, uh, cis women, you know, they're women and, and trans women are women, but they just have different experiences of womanhood. And I was wondering if, if the, um, you've kind of encountered that and thought about the idea that basically people will say, well, trans women and cis women, they're both women. It's just, you know different experiences of women in the same way that a black woman and a white woman are both women that have different experiences of womanhood. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, that sort of, I mean, first of all, it's silly because men aren't women no matter what they do. You know, putting on a dress doesn't make a man a woman. Um, so, you know, maybe he could say he has a different experience of femininity, but he can't say he has a different experience of being a woman because he's not a woman um a woman is an adult human female that's it it doesn't have anything to do with these gender stereotypes so i mean i think that it's it's pretty like gross to to co-opt that that argument you know that that black women have made um or that feminists have made to to ensure that people understand that women who are poor or working class or living in different parts of the world or racialized and subject to racism might have a different experience in this world than a woman who is rich or white or you know a woman who lives in canada is going to have a different experience than a woman who lives in south asia um that's true obviously um but that doesn't mean that a man who identifies more strongly with femininity or has some kind of mental illness 
or who desires to be a woman or who has a fetish that involves him like getting turned on by imagining himself to be a woman or dressing up like a woman is a woman just like all these other women. He's not. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, do, you, do you think it's possible that there could be um, an alliance between people who subscribe to queer theory and feminists like yourself? And, and would you want there to be? I mean, sure. Like, I mean, I'm happy to ally with various people on various issues if we happen to agree on those issues. I'm not, I mean, not all that interested in making formal alliances with people. If we agree, and then we agree, and great. Um, mm. But I think, I mean, in terms of feminism, it's difficult to form alliances with queer theorists because they have such a very different ideology and such very different goals and they sort of speak a different language than the entire rest of the world. Um, I sort of think they live in a bit of a, an elitist academic bubble um, and I'm not particularly interested in working on those lines or using that kind of language or, you know, using ideas that don't exist within material reality and that don't actually help real people. But sure, I mean, if queer theorists or trans activists decided to stop attacking women and the feminist movement and started mm. to engage in rational, coherent conversation, then, then great, you know, like feminists, I'm sure would be happy to support trans people in building their own spaces and services if that's something they feel is needed which they seem to insist it is needed but then don't bother actually doing that just you know sort of focus on gaining access to women's spaces so that's that's all my questions i, I definitely could have asked more but i didn't want to uh, you know take up too much of your time but if you have any you know final comments or things that you don't think i mentioned which you'd like to bring up then uh Please do let me know. I can't really think of anything else, no. All right, well, thank you. I must apologise, I could have ended that more formally, but I stopped recording before we said our final goodbyes. So i just like to say again, that was Megan Murphy, the editor for Feminist Current, a prominent Canadian feminist, a prominent Canadian feminist website. And the conversation was really appreciated. And I, I do think it was interesting. I think it's particularly was interesting since there has been recently the uh, announcement of the ruling on the Tavistock case. This is concerning the providing of puberty blockers to children below the ages of 16. And you had several transgender people who, who are now detransitioning, who no longer consider themselves transgender, who are detransitioning and are, feel that they did not receive proper counselling on whether or not they should have been given these puberty blockers, whether or not they really wanted to be given these puberty blockers uh, when they were at a very young age. So this is something which is, is still in the news. It's something which I think uh, inevitably is going to have to be spoken about more in the future, uh, because I think right now it is, it is a an issue which a lot of people have a lot of interest in. I think people who are willing to offer nuanced perspective on it are always going to be valued so that's the show for the day uh, I, I think it was very interesting a big thank you again for both our guests luke walsh and megan murphy
uh, particularly sincere thank you and a happy advent to you if you have been listening to us today and i hope you will be back again to listen to us in the future uh, and i know that i certainly enjoyed recording it and speaking to these really interesting people today and i look forward to doing it again so i hope you will join us this was the eclectic vanguard i have been michael brown and this is radio lab 97.1 fm